Well, I'm really glad you're here today, getting a brand new series that we're calling Just Jesus, and today we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew. You know, I've been thinking a lot about the Christmas spectaculars that a lot of churches put on at this time of the year, you know, laser light shows and angels swinging from the rafters and the world's largest manger and live camels and sheep and shivering shepherds. Christmas productions for churches seem to be getting bigger and more expensive with every passing year. I'm sure we could debate all day about the merits of doing those things, but I think one thing upon which we could all agree is this, those productions typically have very little to do with the very first Christmas. That if we really strip away all the overly produced Christmas spectaculars, we get down to what's real and right and true about this season, that's Jesus. Just Jesus on a rescue mission to a world too busy and lost in itself to even take notice that God was being born in a manger. You know, I think it's high time we get back to that simple narrative to really strip away the non-essentials, to focus on Jesus. And that's what we want to do in this series. We want to focus on Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. Now, what's interesting is four times and only four times in the Old Testament, there's a bold exclamatory statement about the Messiah. Each of these statements is introduced by the same word, behold. And here they are. Behold thy king in Zechariah. Behold my servant in Isaiah. Again in Zechariah, behold the man. And then Isaiah, behold your God. Now, whether it was intentional or not, these four exclamations about the Messiah happen to correspond with the four themes of the four Gospels in the New Testament. So if you look at Matthew, Jesus is presented as king. In Mark, he's the servant. In Luke, he's the son of man. And in John, he's the son of God. You know, I like that these four exclamations about Messiah in the Old Testament are amplified and explained by the four Gospels whether or not that was done on purpose. So this word behold is a word that kind of captures my imagination because it's a word we don't use much anymore. It's kind of fallen into disuse. Typically, the only time we hear it is around Christmas time, and maybe you're watching, you know, Charlie Brown Christmas special, and you hear Linus say, behold, I bring you tidings of great joy. Of course, he's quoting Luke, but we just don't use that word. It's not a word we use. Instead, we use watch and, and look and focus. But you should just know that those words really don't mean the same thing as the word behold. This word behold is really pregnant with meaning, and I'm going to show you the four facets to beholding. First, when I really behold something, I want to know it. In other words, I study it to learn it. I want to know everything there is to know about it so I can more fully or completely understand what it is I'm seeing. Second, when I behold something, I absorb it or I take it in. So this is not a quick look-see. This is more like standing at the base of the Rocky Mountains and just wanting to drink in all of their majesty and all of their beauty. That's what it means to behold, to, to let your senses be filled up completely. And third, if I really behold something, I experience it. In other words, it becomes a part of me. I move from being just a spectator to being a participant. I'm no longer content with just standing on the sidelines. I want to get in on the action. When I behold something, I want to experience it. Then the fourth and final aspect of beholding is I'm changed by it. I'm a different person as a result of this. It's like I have looked so intently and so longingly at this thing that I have become one with it. 
Now that is my desire for everyone in this series as we behold Jesus. I don't want to just take a quick look at him. I want us to drink in all that Jesus is. I want to stand at the foot of his majesty and be overwhelmed by him. I want us to know him. I want us to absorb him. I want us to experience him. And I want us to be changed by him. So we're going to start this month of December by looking at Matthew as he tells us, Behold the King. Now you should just know that Matthew's gospel is actually filled with references to Christ as king. This is just a handful of references to show us that. In Matthew 2.2, a passage we'll be looking at today, the Magi asked the question, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Before Pilate, Jesus is asked a question. Look at this exchange. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor questioned him saying, are you the king of the Jews? And he said to him, it is as you say. And you might remember that at the cross, the accusation that was placed above Christ, the, the accusation of his crime, this is it. Above his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, besides the many references to Christ as king in the gospel of Matthew, there's even more references to Christ's kingdom, because that's what a king does. A king sets up his kingdom. It describes to us what that kingdom will be like. There's about 10 references in Gospel of Matthew to Jesus, son of David. And this is said by everybody, even by people who are begging for a healing, for a healing from Jesus. But the son of David is a reference to the royalty of Christ himself, that he's a son of a king himself. Now, in big ways and in small ways, we're reminded of Christ's royalty. Like in my first point, his royalty is revealed by his genealogy. So if you start reading the book of Matthew, a lot of us, we kind of bog down right away because it's a genealogy, so we kind of skip over to the story in chapter 2. But I'm going to tell you, it's very appropriate that Matthew begins with the genealogy of the king because the ancestry of a king is one of the most important things about them. A king, to be a king, has to have a rightful claim to the throne. So Matthew traces from Abraham all the way down to Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, to show us that Jesus was from the royal line of David. Now you say, wait a minute. You know, Joseph is just a father in name because God made Mary pregnant. Why does Joseph's lineage even matter? That's a great question. I'm really glad you asked it. So you see, it's because it's with Joseph and through Joseph that Jesus gets his royal right to the throne. Because Joseph named and claimed Jesus as his own, he's now the heir of Joseph. Now, for those of you who are curious, Luke records the genealogy of Mary, who also happens to be a descendant of the line of David. But the way the law worked, Jesus' legal right to the throne came through Joseph, his father who named him and claimed him. His hereditary right came through Mary, his mother. But here's something interesting. Did you know that there is no Jewish person alive today on earth who has any idea of their lineage? There's no Jewish person today who truly knows what tribe they came from or what their portion was supposed to be in the promised land because all of those records were destroyed in 70 AD when Titus Vespasian sacked Jerusalem. Now, think about this. No one who showed up today to the current nation of Israel claiming to be the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David, 
could ever under any circumstances prove that claim to be true. The last verifiable claim to Messiahship was Jesus Christ. And after his death and resurrection, shortly after, those records were destroyed. So he was the last one who could prove that he was the Messiah. Here's another indicator of his royalty. His royalty is revealed by unique circumstances surrounding his birth. Now, there's two sides to every story, and there's two sides to the Christmas story. Usually at this time of the year, we only hear one side. We hear Luke's version of the story, and it's a beautiful way of telling the Christmas story about a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, about, about the, the shepherds that gather and the angels in the heavens that sing. I mean, it's, it's a touching and tender way to tell the Christmas story. And like I say, it's almost exclusively what we hear at this time of the year. But there is another side to this coin, and it's the way Matthew tells the Christmas story. And this is a side we don't hear as often. This is a story about troubling dreams and sleepless nights. In Matthew's account, Mary's pregnancy is a scandal. And Joseph is thinking about divorcing her quietly, putting her away. Add to that you have an evil king who does everything within his power to kill this newborn Jesus by slaughtering hundreds of innocent children in an attempt to eradicate this king while he's still a baby. Matthew tells us this side of the story. You know, in in Star Wars, we'd call this the dark side of the story, right? The fact that Jesus was rejected from his birth. Now, there's two major players in this story. One is the visit of the Magi. This word for magi in, in, in Greek is magus or magi, and it's a Persian word. So what we're talking about is present-day Iran or Iraq. If you look at a map of the world, you would see that Iran and Iraq are east of Israel. That's what the wise men are called. Remember, wise men from the east. Now, what they were were astrologers or interpreters of omens. Our word magic comes from their name. Now, since they're into astrology, it's appropriate to ask What exactly was this star that they saw in the sky? Well, frankly and honestly, we don't exactly know because the Greek word for star is the Greek word aster. And it can mean a literal star, but it could literally also mean any kind of bright light in the sky. So some people have said, no, it was a star that God put in the heavens. Other people have suggested that maybe it was the alignment of uh, Jupiter, Mars, and Saturn. And by the way, you know who, one of the people who suggest this, or one of the organizations that suggest this, is the Adler Planetarium in Chicago, Illinois. You can see a description there about this alignment that happened around the first century. Also, you all, it could have been just that God put a light in the sky like the Shekinah glory of God, the glowing presence of God in the Old Testament. So the truth is we don't know for sure what the star was. But let me take the mystery a little deeper. A star alone would not have told the Magi all they needed to know. By their own confession, they said they've come seeking the one who was born king of the Jews, right? No star in the heavens will tell them that. No star in the heavens reveals that level of specificity. So they had to have had some exposure to the Hebrew scriptures to know that a new king, a king like no other, a Messiah was to be born. So here's the real question. How do they know the star meant anything at all? And I think the best explanation for that is the book of Daniel. You see, the book of Daniel chronicles the story of Daniel and his companions how they were exiled for 70 years in this kingdom 700 miles east of Israel. 
When Babylon conquered Israel, what they did to kind of guarantee the subservience of the leaders in Israel, they took their kids. They took the best and the brightest back to Babylon for indoctrination. What the book of Daniel tells us is the story of four of them. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You probably know the latter three better by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these four are the story that are told in the book of Daniel. Now notice this, what the Babylonians said about them. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. In other words, these Jewish boys stood out. And by the way, they really are boys. The term that's used to describe their age is about what we would consider a middle schooler. So this, these middle school boys, they stand out. They're sharp. They're savvy. They're better informed than their pagan contemporaries. And a little while later, Nebuchadnezzar has this ominous dream. And he doesn't know what it means. And the magi, the wise men that surround him, they can't interpret it. But this Jewish boy by the name of Daniel, can. And when he does, here's what happened. The king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and put him in charge of all of its wise men. So get this, many years prior to the birth of Jesus, God's people are carried off into captivity into a foreign land from which the Magi hail. And while they're there, these Hebrew young men so distinguish themselves that one of them is placed in authority over the Magi. He's in charge of their training, in their instruction. He's now their boss. Now my question for you is this. What do you think a faithful young Jewish man would do when given the authority over these mystics? I think he would have taught them the truth, don't you? I think he would have exposed them to the teachings of the Jews. And remember too... Daniel wrote a book while in captivity that bears his name, the book of Daniel. These mystics likely had that book too. And they'd been studying it for many years. And in chapter 9 of the book of Daniel, he speaks of the coming Messiah. He even talks about his death and the timing of his arrival. So according to the book of Daniel, after 69 weeks of years, a Messiah would be born. These pagan mystics, they have the time frame. They also know, according to the book of Daniel, this, this Messiah is destined to die. So after many generations, they've been keeping track of time. And about the time that Daniel suggested, they notice a mysterious alignment in the heavens that they'd never seen before centered over Israel. They put two and two together, and they set off on their trek. Now think about what I've just said to you. These pagan mystics find Jesus using a system that's mocked in the Old Testament. It's Matthew's way of showing that God is reaching out to the Gentiles and God is going to use their broken system of discovering truth to lead them to the one who is truth. And then we're introduced to a new character. His name is Herod. He's called Herod the Great, but that's a name he gave to himself, so no ego, right? (laughs) Believe it or not, we know more about Herod than almost any other person of antiquity. Did you know that? We know so much about him, largely because there's this first century Jewish historian by the name of Josephus who wrote two entire books about the life of Herod. So we know a lot about this guy. And not just do we know about him, but he commissioned a ton of building projects around Jerusalem, and he rebuilt the Jewish temple, which they say was even greater than that of Solomon. 
Now, of course, Herod didn't do any of this because he was religious. He rebuilt the temple because he wanted to placate the Jews, and he thought that this would keep them in line and protect his throne. Now, Herod was a puppet king of Rome. What Rome wanted, Herod did. He was completely sold out to the empire. If I had three words to describe him, I would use the words crafty, cruel, and paranoid. This is a guy, in his paranoia, it was so extreme that he had members of his own family killed. Like, for example, he had his wife, Miriam, who happened to be his favorite wife of his ten wives. So it makes you kind of wonder what happened to the other nine, right? So he has her killed. He kills his own three sons, Alexander, Antipaster, and Aristobulus. He kills his brother-in-law, Costabar, his mother-in-law, Alexandra, he drowns a high priest. He killed several uncles, a couple of cousins. It made the then emperor, Caesar Augustus, say this about Herod. It's better to be Herod's pig than son. <laughs> Josephus, the man who wrote so much about Herod, said he was a murderous old man. So this is the guy we're talking about, and here's how the story goes. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is this one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Now Herod's reaction is very telling. The Bible says he was disturbed. And literally in the Greek what it says is he shakes violently. I mean, he's like Elvis. He's all shook up, right? I mean, he's, he just, he's torn up by this question. This, this question, where is this one who's been born king of the Jews, totally blindsides him. It blindsides him because he's called the king of the Jews. And now there's one who's been born king of the Jews. And not just that. Why do outsiders know this and nobody in Jerusalem is talking about it? Why do these Gentiles come all the way 700 miles from Persia to come here saying they're looking for the Messiah and where exactly is this Messiah supposed to be born? Herod doesn't know the answer to that question. But he knows who will, so he calls in the religious leaders, and here's what happened next. When he called all the chief priests and teachers, he, when he called together all the chief people's chief, this is really worded funny. Okay, so let me try again. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet, the prophet Micah, has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Now notice, they don't hesitate in giving the answer. The, the, the leaders know. In fact, practically every Jewish kid knew that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. Herod's oblivious to it because he's only religious in name. He's not a real believer. He's a sellout to Rome. So think about this. The Jewish scribes, they have the book of Daniel too. They also know the last key of the puzzle, specifically where the Messiah is to be born. They have all the same indicators to them that the Messiah had in front of them and more so. But these pagan mystics were savvy enough to figure it out based on what little knowledge they had. What an indictment on the religious leaders that they couldn't see what the Magi could see and they didn't care like the Magi cared. So at this point, Herod does something strange. He asked the Magi, 
when the star first appeared. Of course, this is to try to determine, based on the star's appearance or the, uh, the phenomenon in the sky, about what the age of the child would be. Now, ultimately, where this leads is an edict by Herod to slaughter all the boys under the age of two in Bethlehem just to be sure they kill the right kid. Herod's not going to tolerate any rival to his throne. So he's asking the wise men this question, then he sends them off with his blessing. Matthew 2.8, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report him to me, so that I too may go and worship him. He has no interest in worshiping this child. He wants to zero in on him and kill him. Now remember, the Magi are not from Jerusalem. They don't know Herod. This whole time, Herod is pretending to be just as devoted as they are that he wants to sincerely know so that he could worship. But God speaks to the pagans in a dream not to go back to Jerusalem, not to tell Herod anything, and he warns them and they don't go back. So God speaks to the pagans and they don't go back. And by the time that Herod figures out that they're not coming back, he enacts his plan to kill all the male toddlers in Bethlehem. Now by this time, Mary, Joseph, and the baby have fled to Egypt. So let me kind of briefly continue this story, but I want to talk to you first about the gifts and their message. Now, the wise men, I know a lot of you at your mangers at home, you have three wise men. Please know, we don't know how many wise men there were. We know there are three gifts. It might have been two wise men. It might have been 20 wise men. We really don't know the number in the entourage. We only know the number of gifts, and we know what the gifts were, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, first and foremost, these gifts are very practical, and that is they're valuable. They're valuable because, you see, the Holy Family, they're going to have to flee to Egypt. They're going to have to go to another country because their lives are in danger. Their lives are under threat. And when they go there, they're going to have to be able to sell these things so that they have some means to support themselves. They're going to leave their entire support system, whatever that might have been, to go live in a country where they've never been. And this is going to help them survive during that time, which, by the way, you should know, this is why God cares so much about the immigrant, what's what's called the stranger in the Bible, because this was a part of Jesus' own history. He knows what it's like to have to leave a country that you call your home because your life is in danger, and you go to some place you've never been, and what it means for people to show compassion on you. So... There's rich symbolism. Besides the practicality, there's rich symbolism associated with these gifts. Number one is gold for his majesty. In the Old Testament, gold is often associated with kings. Remember the queen of Sheba, the queen of Ethiopia, who comes to see Solomon? Well, here's what the Bible says about this exchange. It says, she gave the king 120 talents of gold. By the way, one talent of gold is 75 pounds. So 120 times 75, you do the math. I figured this out yesterday. It's about $225 million in today's economy, okay? So she gives him 120 talents of gold, a very great amount of spices and precious stone. Never again did such an abundance of spices come in as that which the Queen of Sheba gave King Solomon. So the Queen of Sheba understood he was a king. Gold's appropriate for a king. The Magi understand that Jesus is a king, so they bring him gold that's fitting for a king. But there's also frankincense for the high priest. Frankincense wasn't native to ancient Israel. Frankincense is just incense. It's made from the resin of the Boswellian tree, which grows in Yemen and Oman. 
For thousands of years, incense has been traded as a valuable commodity. Now, the most common use of incense in the Bible was by the priest in temple worship because when incense is burning, the smoke that rises represents the prayers of God's people. We see this also in the book of Revelation. So what does this tell you about the understanding of the Magi in relation to this Christ child that's born? They understand he's not just a king, but he's also a priest, right? The third most interesting and really kind of shocking gift is this last one, myrrh, for the one who's about to die. You know you can still buy myrrh today. You can buy it on eBay. It's $2.99 plus shipping and handling. Myrrh is the resin of the Kamafora tree. That grows in Somalia and Ethiopia. Now, it has similar qualities to incense, but with one major distinction. Most incense has a sweet smell, and myrrh has a bitter one. Myrrh has a bitter one. It was commonly used around funerals because if you burned myrrh, I mean, it has medicinal values too, but if you burned myrrh, it helped to, to cover the stench of a body decaying. So it was commonly used in the first century before and many years after in association with dead in the funeral rites. Egyptian mummies are often covered in myrrh. In fact, they say when they broke into Tutankhamun's tomb, they opened that seal after so many years, they were almost knocked out by the smell of myrrh coming out of that entrance. Jesus, remember Nicodemus goes to prepare the body of Jesus to wrap his body? He brings a hundred pounds of myrrh with him. That's what the scripture tells us, to put Jesus into the tomb. So this gift seems to be a foreshadowing of the suffering and the death of the Christ child. To give you an equivalent, it would be like bringing a quart of embalming fluid to a baby shower. It sends a message. These magi understand not only is this one born to be king and high priest, but he is also destined to die. And how do they know that? Because that's what the book of Daniel told them. They get it when God's people don't. This is a constant theme in the gospel, how that outsiders seem to be more perceptive, more understanding than the people of God. On top of that, consider this. The Magi did not see the adult Jesus performing miracles, did they? They had no power of his eloquent and authoritative words to overawe them. They saw nothing about him, his divinity, and his greatness to captivate their heart. What they had was a promise in a book, a star in a sky, and a helpless, weak toddler. But when they looked at that vulnerable, weak child, they saw a king. And before they even offered their gifts, they bowed down and they worshipped. What an indictment against the religious leaders of Jesus' day. The Jewish king is born six miles from Jerusalem. That's the distance of this building down to Medical City on Forest Lane. And nobody thought it was worth the trek to figure out if it was really happening. The Magi traveled 700 miles without knowing the final destination. So where are the scribes? Where are the chief priests? Well, they're in Herod's palace seeking favor from a politician who's going to be dead in a few short years. There seems to always be an infatuation with the rulers of this earth when I'm telling you, friends, there's only one person we should be infatuated with, and that's the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. There is no earthly ruler, no resident on Pennsylvania Avenue that is worth that adoration because every one of them, past, present, and future, their middle name is Herod, and it always has been. There is one king, there is one Lord, 
before which we will all bow. So the religious leaders have the scriptures. And more importantly, they have more scriptures than the pagans did. The pagans don't know Micah's prophecy. The Jewish people living around Jerusalem, they know the specific location. These pagans from a faraway land, using a broken spiritual system, are living up to what truth they have, and they seek and find the King of kings and Lord of lords. You know, people always ask me, what is God going to do with people who don't have the Bible and don't know about Jesus? The one thing I know for certain is every single human being will be held responsible for the level of truth that they have. And without exception in the Bible, when someone lives up to the truth that they have, God rewards them with more truth. God gives them direction. God always honors the seeking heart. So if God could use a star to reach them, then he can use anything to reach anybody. God is infinitely creative in what he can and will use to break through to people who are far from him. He can use a star, a book, a song, an off-the-cuff comment, a godless king, indifferent religious leaders, anything and everything and anyone he desires. If God can reach pagan mystics, he can reach anybody. Now, there's so much more to the royalty of Christ in the gospel of Matthew than I have time to go through. There's so many of the prophecies that are fulfilled. Matthew, which is 28 chapters long, has 50 direct citations from the Old Testament, 75 indirect ones that show that the Messiah is the one born King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Not just that, we have the greatest sermon ever preached in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We call it, on the, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, but it's better called Christ's Kingdom Manifesto. Because it describes what the kingdom will be like, what it takes to change the world, and the upside-down value system that's the kingdom of God. You have the triumphal entry, where Jesus comes and turns the idea of the warrior Messiah on its head. He doesn't come in Jerusalem on a white steed surrounded by soldiers. He comes on the foal of a donkey. He's surrounded by the poor who are waving palm branches of peace. This is a different kind of kingdom. But he's come to set up his kingdom, make no mistake about it. The other constant theme in Matthew is that the king is rejected. The shadow of rejection never lifts from Christ's life. It begins before he's even born when Joseph gets news of Mary's pregnancy and he says, well, I can't have anything to do with her. Of course, he, he understands because God reveals through a dream and then he reconciles and he marries Mary. But not just that, you find that Herod is on this all-out seek-and-destroy mission for the Christ child. You have the, the scribes and the servants, or the, the Pharisees, who turn against Christ from the get-go. You have, by Matthew 13, the popular crowds turning against the teaching of Christ, so he begins then to teach in parables. No other gospel does as much to show the rejection of Christ that Matthew does. That's why these final words in John speak volumes. Listen to this. Pilate said to the Jews, behold your king, pointing to Jesus. And they cried, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then handed him over to be crucified. You see, what I'm telling you is the Christmas message is not just about chestnuts roasting on an open fire and, and, and choir singing Christmas hymns and, and eggnog and, and all these wonderful traditions that we associate with Christmas. It's about an almighty God declaring war on evil and telling us it's time to choose a side. Now, zoologists tell us that all animals have a fight-flight line. Have you ever heard that term before? A fight-flight line. 
I often have gone to the back country of the Rocky Mountain National Park to fly fish. And where I love to camp is this mountain lake called Lake Verna. It's about 10,250 feet in the Rockies. And we will we'll fish that lake some, but most often we hike above that lake and we fish all the streams that separate the lakes because they're just filled with trout. One time I was there with a bunch of friends. And we were coming down from an upper elevation back to Lake Verna. We were about 50 yards from the lake when we startled a black bear. This black bear was down at the lake and he was fishing or doing something and he heard us. And because we scared him, we crossed his flight line. And what shocked me is I said, look, there's a, and before I even got the word bear out, that bear was as high on the opposite mountain ridge as we were on the trail. You see, bears can run really fast uphill. They have long back legs, short front legs. They're ideal for running uphill. If you have to run from a bear, run downhill. They're disadvantaged that direction. Uphill, you're going to lose every time. But I realized if we had crossed his fight line, he'd been on me before I even said bear. He was that fast. Human beings have a fight flight line. And maybe you've never thought about Christmas in this way before, but this is about God becoming flesh, crossing onto our turf, and crossing our fight-flight line. And just like animals, we run or we fight. Adam and Eve ran. Jonah ran. Jacob, he fought with God. So did Herod. Like an irrational animal, he fought to try to save his little kingdom from encroachment. What I'm saying is the real Christmas message is threatening. That God came and invaded our turf. And Jesus wants the position we want for ourselves. And so the ultimate question of this book is not just as Jesus king, and not only did his own people reject him, but what are you going to do with Jesus? Who's going to be king of your life? Who calls the shots? Who gets to be in charge? That's what Matthew wants to know. Now here's the thing. I, 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 don't, I think we don't like to tell Matthew's story. Because we like to keep Jesus this nice little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Because that doesn't feel threatening like the arrival of a king does. The arrival of a king demands an answer. And if I can tell you anything at all, let me tell you this. This king, and I've been knowing him for a long time now. This king is like no king on this earth. He's no dictator. He's a servant king. He's a loving king. He's a king that understands you better than anybody else because he's the one who made you. And his plan for you as his servant is one that fits you like a glove. On Thanksgiving this year, it marked an anniversary for me. 43 years ago, on November 28, 1976, I took a knee before the king of kings and I said, I believe that Jesus is calling me into the ministry. I believe he wants me to preach the gospel. I was 14 years old. It was two weeks before I turned 15, December 10th, in case you need to mark it in your calendar right now for some reason. 14 years old. And I said, I quoted 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Christ Jesus my Lord who has enabled me and they counted me faithful putting me into the ministry. The pastor said, great, you're going to preach your next sermon, your first sermon next Sunday night. So on December 5th, 1976, five days before I turned 15, that's December 10th, the birthday, but on December 5th, on December 5th, I preached my first sermon and six people trusted Christ for the very first time. 
I can tell you, I am so glad I took a knee before this king. Because this king is the most benevolent, loving king who has a plan for transforming this world that rivals no other. And he will always be my liege, my sovereign, my king, my lord. And this is a perfect time of the year to take a knee before him. And understand, this is time of year we're not just celebrating a baby being born. We're, we're celebrating the king of kings who's returned to this planet to reclaim what is his. And you belong to him, and you matter to him, and he wants you. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for what you're doing in this place that we get to be a part of it. Thank you, God, for how you are working right now in this room. The king has come to his own. And he wants to know who's in charge, who calls the shots, who's going to be the boss. And Lord, the most happy reunion of our life is when we return to you, to the one who made us, to the one who knows us, to the one who loves us like no other. And we discover that you have a plan for our life that fits us like a glove. For anybody in this room who doesn't know you in a personal relationship, help them in this moment to say, Jesus, I want you in my life. I don't understand it all, but I understand you've come into your world. You've invaded my turf, and you say, I want to be the one that's in charge. I want to be king. I want to be your sovereign, but I will never force myself on you. It must be something you accept from your heart because you genuinely want it. So God, may someone embrace you with all their heart and soul today and say, Jesus, be Lord of my life. Be my Savior. Do in me what I cannot do for myself. And for every child of God in this room, I pray, God, that we be reminded of what it means to be at this time of the year and not celebrate merely a baby being born, but the king returning to his own. That the people in our life that matter to us, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, that they would know something about what it means to serve the most benevolent, loving king the world has ever known. That they may see something different about us. That we behold Jesus. And as we behold you, we're just overawed by all that you are. And we become more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.